if we know our children are going into facilities and gathering places where safety is top of mind, it eases some of the anxiety that's occurring. That's Marion Crow. She's a Chief Executive Officer of the First Nations Health Managers Association. She's our guest on the Akamema Podcast. Dance, Tuwal, and welcome to the Akamema Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamema is Cree, where you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. On this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations people with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And a leading issue right now, of course, is COVID-19 and going back to school. What steps are needed to safely send our children to school in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic? To discuss that and other issues, our guest today is Marion Crow. She is a proud member of the Piapot First Nations in Southern Saskatchewan and Treaty 4 Territory and is the Chief Executive Officer of the First Nations Health Managers Association. She also sits on the Board of Directors of the Ottawa Hospital and was our first guest on this podcast and is now our first return guest. So Marion, welcome back. Tanse National Chief, it's wonderful to be back. Awesome. Well, thanks for being with us again. And before we get to the question of going back to school safely. Let's have a general discussion about COVID-19 and let's talk about some of the infection rates that are going on across some of our First Nations across Canada. What does it look like overall for First Nations in Canada? Where are the hotspots? Where are some of the things that we should be concerned about looking from east to west, north to south, right across Turtle Island? Well, thanks for bringing that forward. As of yesterday, Indigenous Services Canada was reporting 450 on-reserve cases. Um, the hotspots that make up that 450, we're seeing a significant increase in Alberta. Um, we have 41 cases in Quebec, 64 in Ontario, 93 in Saskatchewan, 75 in BC. Alberta rounding us out at 177. To date, we've reported 37 hospitalizations due to COVID-19 coronavirus. Six deaths have occurred. Um, but the great news on, on if you can find a silver lining is we're 417 recoveries, National Chief. Wow. So for right now, as of this date today, September 2nd, 2020, there's 450 cases reported across Canada and 417 recoveries. But as you go through that list, though, Marion, 177 mm -hmm. in Alberta. That is fairly yes. high. And then you look yes. at um, some of the big numbers of First Nations in Ontario, but they only have 64. And mm -hmm. then for us in Saskatchewan back home, there's 93. And we're about, um, what are we, are the million people in Saskatchewan were about 15% of the population. Mm -hmm. So does anything jump out at you at these numbers other than Alberta, 177? That's high compared to the other regions. 
Yeah, when we look at the numbers, especially in Saskatchewan, we have to reflect back on what was happening uh, just before people were taking and uh, greeting the summer season. Laloche was bringing forward a lot of infection rates um, with the Clearwater River Diné mm -hmm. Nation as well and um, some of the Métis communities. So that's still counted in those stats and what really pushed the Saskatchewan numbers up. This is really surprising to me in terms of Alberta. We're seeing that in mainstream as well in Alberta where cases are on the rise. And I think we're going to see the numbers go up uh, quite significantly as things are reopened. People are out and about. And uh, I know in Ontario, they're already talking about Toronto possibly shutting down once again uh, because of the escalating numbers in Ontario. So we're going to see these go up and and what's really important, uh, we're doing a good job relatively in First Nations at flattening the curve. Uh, we need to still exercise our diligence on keeping that curve flattened. Uh, that's a good segue to the next point about we all know um, people talk about the second wave. You know, the second wave is coming. Epidemiologists are talking about that. And and uh, you, you mentioned uh, the things that... That, that we need to do, like social distancing. What else do we need to do in order to prepare for that second wave to make sure that the that curve is flattened and maintained going forward? What's the main message there, preparing for the second wave as it, as it is deemed to be coming? Yeah, the second wave, uh, which is COVID-2 plus flu, very easy to remember in terms of how our health community is looking at that, COVID-2 plus flu, mm. is a reminder we still need to wash our hands, wear the mask. Um, it's not mm -hmm. just about uh, protecting yourself, but all of the people we interact with, maintaining very small social circles, um, exercising, continued exercising on our sovereignty about uh, keeping nations closed or somewhat limited to off-reserve visitors. And of course, we have to have to not touch our faces and exercise all of the practices that we have been doing since all of this became a global pandemic. So again, to prepare, and that's, it's kind of something as dreadful as COVID and flu, but it, it rhymes. COVID-2 plus flu, we're not going to forget that. That's the, the new uh, reality coming into the fall. But yes. to, to be vigilant and still always do the same things of social distancing, wear your masks, wash your hands, um, you know, watch your, your, your interactions with people, like minimalize, minimalize that, you know, minimize that as best you can. And uh, that's how we're going to prepare. Okay. The other thing, Let's... National Chief, is uh, Go ahead. when we talk about the second part of that, the flu, it's going to be extra uh, important that we get our flu shots this year. We're going to be hit mm. with two things going on and having those vaccination rates go up is really going to support that people not have an outbreak in their community. So go get your flu shots, everybody, uh, and maintain that good distance and all of the other practices that National Chief just mentioned. Awesome. Okay, so go get your flu shots. You know, it's COVID-2 plus flu. So 
let's not compound the problem and let's prepare by getting your flu shots and get vaccinated and continue to do all those things that we just mentioned as well. Um, let's turn our attention and dialogue now, Marianne, to uh, schools and back to school. It's September 2nd. You know, there's always that fear, like, what do we do? Do we send our children back to school now? And, and w- so what can be done, you know, in terms of getting schools ready? What should parents, what should chiefs and councils and school boards, uh, what should they be looking at doing in order to get ready for creating a safe space for children coming back to school, not only for the students, but for the teachers and staff? Well, there is so much to do, uh, National Chief, but I mean, the biggest plan to go back to school is to have a plan, right? Let's relook at what the community health and safety plans are. This brings forward a whole new complication as we deal with um, school uh, boards, maybe multiple school boards, and really exercise the partnerships that we have as nations. Uh, we need to talk about what the learning groups look like in the classroom environment, how many kids are going to be within the classroom, uh, looking at the physical distancing and traffic flows within the school and in the classroom. We have to ensure that student transportation on buses is top of mind when it comes to safety and maintaining social distancing. Obviously, school gatherings is going to be something that is going to be have to done differently now in terms of exercising some virtual activities. We have to ensure that extracurricular activities that uh, our children might have are done with diligence. What does after school programming look like in your nation as well. Um, I know those after school programs really help support our employment in the community because we know our kids are going to a safe place, but we can't forget them uh, when they're done the school day. Where are they going after? Who are they interacting with? Obviously, it's not just about, you know, outside of the classroom, but when you're in the school, what do food services look like? Making sure that Auntie is not bringing some homemade snacks, and that's something we're used to is having people bring food, and we just can't have those kinds of practices when we're in a global pandemic. Obviously, the points that we reiterate over and over is hand hygiene. What are the personal strategies for teachers, for everyone that interacts within that classroom and people coming into the school if they have to, is don't touch your face, have that mask on, have a hand washing station. What are the daily health checks that are going to be implemented uh, for your school in your nation? How are those Mm -hmm. going to be practiced? How are you going to cope with an illness at school? Are you going to have a waiting area that's socially distant from other students uh, in case there is somebody that presents with some symptoms? Obviously, you need your Um, janitorial services involved with uh, the best cleaning and disinfection practices that are out there. We have to remember we have students with medical complexities, immune suppressions, or who are receiving delegated care. Um, We have to have a plan for students with disabilities and diverse abilities. 
What do mm. non-medical masks look like? Uh, what about the staff safety as well and how we ensure that those teachers and everyone that's interacting with our children are kept safe? Obviously, you have to have a very strong communication plan in place as well. Maybe the local radio station. What does that telephone system look like um, in ensuring if something has to be closed that you're doing that? How are you presenting to our chief and councils? Um, and then, of course, you need mm -hmm. the training and orientation that goes with that. There are a number of great resources, uh, national chief about mm -hmm. the school reopening considerations that people can access I know at uh, First Nation Health Managers Association we we are constantly on the internet looking for wise practices around COVID-19 and mm -hmm. in this light what does it look like in going back to school one of the best resources that I found uh, in working with our team was uh, a paper by the BC First Nation Health Association and the First Nation School Association that gave very strong protocols on mm -hmm. what it looks like to open in a First Nation and I mean there's so many details here here, but I encourage you to take a look at those resources that go into detail about all of the things I just chatted about, um, and they do have a checklist available as well. To summarize it up in, in almost a sentence, it's very complex, but you need a community health and safety plan, and you need to do that First Nation by First Nation by First Nation, by school board, by school board, by school board, and by, by education authority, by education authority, by education authority even by, by family by family and by as parents. Like everybody needs a community health and safety plan and that should be communicated. Um, in light of all of these, because there's so much diversity across Canada, you know, 634 First Nations, um, you know, they're all at different levels in terms of capacity. Some have access to internet, others don't. Um, some have uh, unions, others don't. You know, with the school teachers, so there's so many challenges. But the bottom line is community health and safety plans have to be in place for students, for teachers, and everything that you talked about uh, has to be considered. So that's a, a strong message going forward. And the federal government and the Crown has an obligation to support and assist. Uh, we have treaty obligations. We have inherent rights, Aboriginal rights to education. And let's talk a little bit about the gaps that, 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 that exist at the First Nations level, community level, uh, compared to the rest of the society across Canada. Because that was... Uh, a huge issue a week ago when um, Minister of Indigenous Services Canada, Mark Miller, announced a, an additional $112 million for First Nations to help get ready for back to school. And some will say that's not enough, and that's always been the point, not enough resources. Some will say the timing is, is too late, a little too late, because, of course, this should have come out months ago in order for First Nations to properly prepare for the educational school systems. But it is there. And it is over and above the resources that are there. And uh, the numbers I looked at per capita, based on the number of students we have on reserve, it amounts to about an, an additional $1,500 per child. Um, you know, because some compared it to the, the billions going out to the provinces, and based on the number of students in the provinces, um, it, there was more for First Nations. That's how the ministry argued it to myself when I kept asking we need more for our First Nations on reserve. Uh, so, yes, there are resources coming out, but from your perspective, let's just talk about some of the gaps from your experience and from what you witnessed across Canada 
uh, as it comes to uh, some of the issues that we face? Yeah, um, National Chief, when we talk about the gaps, and I mean, obviously, we're really appreciative of further announcements for funding to support back to school initiatives, just like the government has supported the rest of Canada. When we talk about that number, uh, is it enough? Well, it's never enough. When we look at the gaps in services, that money doesn't uh, leave enough to put in infrastructure in communities. Infrastructure has been a huge discussion on all sectors in terms of uh, responding to COVID-19 in this global pandemic. We cannot do distance education in some areas of Canada and in our communities, in our nations, like the rest of Canada is doing. Universities mm -hmm. are um, having online classrooms, but if we don't have the bandwidth and we're still on dial up, we can't have that. Yeah. Um, obviously, if you do have the bandwidth and connectivity, do you have the equipment? We need some sort of tool in the hand of every child in our nation to be able to keep up with the rest of Canada. I mean, do mm -hmm. they have a tablet? Do they have a phone? How are they using that? Um, it, and so I, it's not just the infrastructure, but the capital investment that needs to go behind it. National mm -hmm. Chief, you touched on the social determinants of health. I mean, all of these things make up to really magnify the gaps that we're facing. If we talk about overcrowding in our communities, that really pushes up infection rates. But how do mm -hmm. we exercise social distancing when we have 19 people in our home and tuberculosis and all of those factors that make up a poorer quality of life? And how do we continue to advocate for equal and accessible quality health services. Um, because at mm. the end of the day, if we're not safe, well and healthy, we're not going to thrive. And so investments still need to be further made to catch us up to the rest of Canada. No, that's a good message. And I think it's timely as well with a throne speech coming on September 23 and hopefully a federal budget. And that's the message I've always said to not only First Nations people, but to Canadians is that you need to keep making investments to close the socioeconomic gap that exists. So keep making investments in education and healthcare and housing and water and infrastructure, all those things. And, and you're going to get a huge return on investments because they are investments. And the fastest growing segment of Canada's population are young First Nations men and women. And so good quality education, healthcare is definitely needed. They're fundamental human rights, but they're also inherent rights and treaty rights as well. So the Crown has a responsibility. So uh, a lot of our listeners, Canadians don't get that not all First Nations have access to the internet. So that whole point about bandwidth and internet. So we're going to keep pushing hard so that infrastructure gap is closed sooner than later for First Nations people because that's a huge gap. And I think, uh, again, in 2020, it's not much uh, uh, to, to ask or expect that all First Nations people have access to the Internet in a good way. So that can help with uh, e-learning, distance education, and healthcare, e-health care, all the above. So those are some very, very key points, and we're going to keep pushing that forward. So the gaps need to be closed. And as we always said, 
that not only helps First Nations people, that helps Canada as a country. Uh, the, the, the upfront costs are going to be coming. The downriver costs will be lowered in, in terms of the investments upfront. So mm-hmm. good comments. Now let's talk about, we have 634 First Nations across Canada. We have challenges, you know, uh, in terms of the gaps that we just talked about. But in spite of all these challenges, there are some First Nations people and First Nations chiefs and councils doing some really innovative and, and good things. Let's let's talk about those ones. So which ones jump to mind in your mind and your experiences? You know, look at these First Nations. They're really doing exciting things. Like who comes to mind in your opinion? Well, of course, National Chief, I think right away to our home region, Saskatchewan, and uh, being a proud Treaty 4 uh, member, I, I quickly narrowed in on what's happening at Pasqua First Nation. I uh, mean, Chief Todd Pegan. Yeah. Yes, Go ahead. I can't believe uh, the practices they have implemented at their school. They're not going to reopen on, until October 1. But it's because they're Mm -hmm. so busy getting prepared, exercising those plans and talk about innovation. You have an Indigenous owned company providing the services to bring our children back safely. I saw them Mm -hmm. on the news and did a little bit more digging and thought, look at the domes they're building around those desks, the hand washing stations they've implemented. Um, It just the protection and it really does a lot in terms of the impacts on mental health if we know our children are going into facilities and gathering places where safety is top of mind it eases some of the anxiety that's occurring and i mean mental health investments are a whole separate discussion But I know that parents are going to feel a lot better if their children are going back to the Pasqua First Nations school. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Are there any others that jump to mind other than Pasqua? Because I know Chief Todd Pegan and he's he's really a strong leader Mm -hmm. and he's doing a lot for Pasqua and a lot of fronts. And uh, so he's making sure that there's a lot of uh, safety measures in place for the students and uh, as well. Uh, so the, the parents have that comfort level about sending to to, to Pasqua First Nation schools. Uh, is there anybody else that jumps in mind across Canada? Absolutely. Despite all the gaps, as you mentioned, uh, National Chief, we do have communities that are owning their own uh, way forward. And I think about Kebowak uh, community mm. up uh, near North Bay, our president, Mr. David McLaren, is the health director there. Of course, I gave him a call right away and said, what's going on there? And I mean, they're dealing with three different school boards, the unions mm-hmm. of three different school boards. They're the ones that are ensuring that um, after school programming will be put in place for all of the people who are working on their community so that they know where their kids are going after school. And they've got top of mind the bus ride as safety to those three different school divisions. One other community that uh, obviously I interact with a lot because our our home office is in Akwesasne, like all the other national Indigenous organizations. I have to say I love my Mohawk friends out there, Mr. Keith LeClaire, keeping the community mm-hmm. safe. They have 
diligent risk management strategies in place. They've done a large campaign around safety and how to implement the risk management aspect of an outbreak. And so working with their um, different partners, as you know, that's a jurisdictional uh, mm -hmm. challenge, I guess is the word I'll use there, but they're doing amazing work. They've been engaging their local radio station to help inform, collect information and share that knowledge with the elders who are going to be looking after the children with parents and all the band members as well. So there's really like Pasqua First Nation, Saskatchewan, Kebowak First Nation as well in terms of the uh, the transportation plans they've got in place, minimizing risks, even at Akwesasne. And for our listeners, Akwesasne is a First Nation that has land on the Canadian side of the border and the USA side of the border, land on the Ontario side and on the Quebec side. And so it really is a jurisdictional and uh, that speaks to the point about as First Nations people, we never created the Canada-USA border, nor did we create the Ontario-Quebec border. Like this is all of our ancestral lands. And so, uh, but they do have some challenging jurisdictional issues at Aquasasne and they're dealing with it uh, in a very proactive way. So some great examples there. Now, Marianne, I want to talk uh, about a lot of people like, and I know there's a thing called InfoPoint. And uh, can you share with our listeners what is InfoPoint about? What does it uh, entail? And uh, why should people be aware of InfoPoint? National Chief, thank you for bringing up InfoPoint. The First Nation Health Managers Association was so encouraged uh, by the uptake we had in our town halls for which you were a guest and we're going to invite you back again this fall to come talk to uh, our town hall audience. But as a result of that, we really um, we realized there was still a need for credible, reliable information around COVID-19. So we quickly put together uh, a helpful desk, if you would, where people can call in, they can email in to us at the InfoPoint desk, and we're gonna search the tools, resources, and information that you need right away. Don't waste your time searching through your emails, the thousands of bulletins coming from government, from all of the different jurisdictions that you mentioned, National Chief. We'll do the digging for you. We will customize what you're looking for, and we're going to get it back to you within 30 minutes. You can call and have service in English or French, and we're just mm -hmm. super excited to have just about 1,500 resources in InfoPoint with respect to COVID-19. And the resource I talked about earlier uh, that was put out by the First Nation Education Association and BC Health Authority actually came out of InfoPoint. We were able to find that and so many more back to school practices, protocols, mm -hmm. templates, and checklists. So give InfoPoint an email or a call and uh, we'll make sure that you have the information that you need in real time. How do you get a hold of Information Point? What's their email and do you have a number handy or something you can share with listeners? Yes, well, feel free to email us at infopoint at fnhma.ca. 
We're more than happy to take those inquiries, or you can give us a call as well at 1-855-446-2719. Now, Marion, we've talked about uh, uh, COVID-19 and some of the, uh, the hotspots across Canada and the statistics, and we've talked about uh, how some First Nations are dealing with it. We've talked about some of the, the schools and some of the challenges sending children back to school and, and some some challenges again by not having uh, internet and overcrowded housing, access to potable water, all those things. What gives you as an individual hope that things are, are going to get better? I'm hopeful. I still continue to believe in the frontline health services, to all of those Indigenous health professionals who have been keeping our community safe and well, to the leadership. This is just a further opportunity for us to exercise what has kept us resilient throughout history. We will persevere, we will thrive, and we get through this as a community. I am especially inspired by uh, a young woman that used to be on our staff while well, she's on leave right now, and this is why I'm hopeful. Juanita Rickards, a First Nation nurse from Northern Ontario, working with FNHMA, who decided during this pandemic, she was gonna go run to the fire not away from it. She went home to her own community and is nursing. And what more inspiration do we need other than that is how we live. We go home, we give the support skills and all of the knowledge that we have back to the community. And that to me is an example of hope, resiliency, and just who we are as Indigenous people. What a strong message, you know, in terms of a challenge and all these things coming down with COVID-19. I'm not going to run away from the challenge or run away from that fire, as you say. I'm going to run towards it to assist and to help out and support First Nations, uh, our people at the community level. And she's a frontline worker. She's a nurse. So... That's amazing about uh, our people rising up to the challenge. So that's a strong message of hope. And on that theme of, of hope and resilience and thankfulness, FNHMA will be having a one-day celebration of all of our Indigenous frontline uh, workers. We want to thank them for what they have done, what they continue to do, and what they will do in the future. And I know that you're going to be joining us on November 4th, National Chief, to thank mm -hmm. all of those frontline folks who desperately need a pick-me-up. Um, and so mark your calendar, everybody, on November 4th. Let's come together, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, and really give thanks and make some noise for all of the frontline workers in First Nation communities across Turtle Island. Well, thanks so much for that, Marianne, and thanks for sharing uh, your, your thoughts, your wisdom, and your experience and uh, with all of our listeners. And this, again, you're the, the first guest that was on my podcast. You're the, the first return guest. And so thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your wisdom with all of our listeners here on the Akamema podcast. Thank you so much, National Chief. It's an honor and a pleasure. Keep up the amazing leadership. And thank you for your support and partnership. And to our listeners, stay safe, stay well, 
stay healthy and stay a moose or a fishing rod length away from everybody and wear that mask. <laughs> okay. Thanks again, Marion. Thank you, National Chief. That was Marion Crow, Chief Executive Officer of the First Nations Health Managers Association. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamemik podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Hey, 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 h